The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me ask you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we'll be this morning. As you're um, turning there, let me just say a word about we've got uh, several college students um, that are in the process of finishing things up for the semester. Some of them finishing out their first year, uh, some of them finishing up their careers uh, at uh, North Greenville and different places. And um, I was talking to Parker on the way in, and uh, Parker's getting ready to go back to North Carolina. Uh, Match will be going back to West Virginia for the summer. I'll be back in the fall. But uh, we've so appreciated having them. These guys are servants. They, they, they're here Sunday mornings. They, they're back for small groups with the youth ministry on Wednesday night or on Sunday nights working with the, the students. Uh, they're here on Wednesday nights for, for the youth ministry events going on, and uh, we're so appreciative of, of them being with us all year long in the service that, that, that they uh, contribute. Uh, and then also a look over here at, at Hannah. Hannah's getting ready to graduate, uh, along with Ethan and Ben, December, I think. Uh, but uh, we've got all kinds of college students that are in different, pros- different places in the process, and uh, we're so appreciative of... Um, of what they do to serve the Lord here at Abner Creek. Isn't that right? Amen. We're so appreciative of them. Now, let me just tell you that um, this passage um, is one that is not, it doesn't deal necessarily with some of these issues that we've been dealing with and looking at divorce and sex and all of this. So I'm not nervous for that reason. I'm just uneasy about this text because this is a difficult passage. This is a difficult passage for any preacher to preach because in this, Paul deals with why he has the right to be paid. Okay, so let me just off the bat say to you that this is not a campaign for me to get a raise, all right? This is not what this is. I'm committed to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we happen to come to this text this morning. And so this morning, Lord willing, we're going to look at verses 1 through 18 together. Uh, and then next week, we'll come back and we'll either pick up there uh, and, and finish out the, the chapter, or I may do something standalone uh, next week. But, uh, but today, this is where we are. And I don't want to hide from it. I don't want to shy away from it. I want to be faithful to the text, as Ethan prayed. Uh, we need the Word of God more than we need breath in our lungs. We need this Word. Okay, so this is what we're going to do this morning. Uh, this not only deals with his right to be paid, but it deals with rights in general. We are a nation founded on rights, aren't we? Um, 1776, July 4th, our forefathers signed the Declaration of Independence, which holds this line in there. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, a few years later, in 1789, this, uh, this document was followed up by the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution called the Bill of Rights. Uh, 197 years later, in uh, 1986, those great American patriots, the Beastie Boys, uh, released their hit song, uh, you got to fight for your right to party. Um, that's a long way from endowed by your creator with certain unalienable rights. I mean, is is the right to party really a right? 
In the 27 years that have ensued since that song, we have only become more and more aware of we are a people that love our rights. Don't we? Don't step on my rights. And some rights are worth defending, and others are simply selfishness. We're going to look at that today. We, we want to see this issue of defending our rights. Well, Paul found himself in a battle for his rights as well. We find this in this passage. He has just written to them in a response to a previous letter that they had written to him. The Christians in Corinth, the church at Corinth, had written to him earlier. And they were in that letter questioning his status as an apostle. They were claiming that what authority did he have? They didn't believe he was really an apostle. First off, they were saying that, you know, you're, you're criticizing and telling us that we should not eat this, this meat that's sacrificed to these idols. And what right do you have to do that? Because we kind of like this meat. These are our restaurants in our city, and we kind of like visiting these restaurants. And what right do you have to tell us not to go there? But also, they, they're looking at Paul's refusal to take any pay from them, and they're using that against them. They're saying others use this right. Others receive pay. But, Paul, you don't receive any, and maybe that's because you don't believe that you're truly an apostle. We don't believe you're an apostle. But Paul knows he's an apostle. The Bible gives two qualifications for what is an apostle. Now, we're not talking about, like, the apostle Ron Carpenter that preaches in Greenville, okay? We're talking about the apostles, biblical apostles. Two requirements— one is that, that an apostle was someone who had to have seen the resurrected Jesus. They had to have seen him visibly after his resurrection. Not only that, but they also had to be specially commissioned by him for gospel ministry, for gospel work. Well, did Paul meet those? Absolutely. Acts chapter 9 tells us his account of being on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute Christians when he was knocked off of his horse, blinded, but before he was blinded, seeing this bright light, this, the Lord Jesus saying, who is this? And Jesus responds to him and tells him, it's me. Why are you persecuting me? After this, he, he works through a man named Ananias to especially commission Paul who was Saul at the time, commissioned Paul to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. So in every way, met all of the qualifications, Paul is indeed an apostle. However, the Corinthians didn't like his stance on eating idle meat. They didn't like the fact that he was not taking pay from them. I've never met a church that you know, would refuse a pastor who didn't want to take pay from them, but that's the case here. And they questioned his authority as an apostle. Now, Paul wasn't normally one that would defend himself. He didn't spend a lot of time. He was not a man of, of ego. But when he was forced into something like this, he had to respond because he knew at the heart of this, the gospel was at stake. If they could discredit him, if they could question his calling, then how would he speak with any authority on anything else? Paul has written half of our New Testament He's probably the greatest figure past Jesus in biblical history. He's shaped the way the church exists and functions. The Holy Spirit speaking through him. So he knows the gospel's at stake. So he defends himself here in these 18 verses. 
We're going to look at these, and from these, we're going to learn two things this morning. And I'll go ahead and tell you, this is going to be detailed. I don't normally like to go into this much detail, but what I'm going to do is I'm simply going to walk through the text. We're going to run through the text. I'm going to comment on a lot of the things that he's saying there, a lot that's going on. But hang with me, because two things we're going to learn. Number one, some things are worth defending. Some things are worth defending. Number two, the gospel frees us to offer up our rights for the advance of the kingdom. Okay? Those are the two things that we're going to learn in this. First, some things are worth defending. Let's read our text, then we'll walk through this. Starting in verse 1, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are, are, not my, are, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord Jesus and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it, the, uh, is it for the ox that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. He's not boasting in himself there, he's boasting in Christ. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now, I want to walk through this text to show you that some things are worth defending. This is going to be the lengthy part of the sermon, this first point. The second point will come very quickly at the end. Okay, So don't get nervous when I'm... 35 minutes on the first point or so. Okay? Maybe I may not be that long, okay? but, uh, but just hang with me. Paul asks 17 questions. 17 questions in the first 14 verses. 
17 questions in the first 14 verses. These are rhetorical questions. He does not expect an answer. There's no answer needed. He's simply assuming that the answer, they will know it. You will know this. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Those are the first two questions, and they are the main two questions. They're what give us the context to know what he's doing here. He is answering the second question first, and then he will answer the first question last. Am I not an apostle? He answers this by saying, I am indeed an apostle. He says there, have I not seen the Lord Jesus? What did I tell you was one of the, one of the requirements for being an apostle? Seeing Jesus resurrected, right? He says, have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Of course, of course I have. He says, are you not the proof of my apostleship? Aren't you the ones that God called me to? Aren't you the Gentiles that God specifically, Jesus specifically commissioned me to? He says, you're the workmanship of, uh, that God sent me to. You are the seal of my apostleship. Now, in that day and age, in that first century, a seal was used by those in authority. To, to be, it would be placed on documents. It would be placed on certain items by the person who was sending it so that in the, in the process of it being delivered, its contents could not be tampered with. If you got this item and the seal had been broken, then you would question whether or not that the authority was still there. But if the seal was still there on the document or on the, the item when you received it, you could know that what was inside was an authoritative package to you. That it was coming from the one who sent it and it was undisturbed. And Paul says to them, look around at yourself. Look at the evidence of the Holy Spirit living within you. Look at the gospel among you. Are you not evidence that the seal has been placed on you? Not by me, but by the one who sent me. I'm the delivery man and the seal is unbroken on you. Are you not proof that I am indeed an apostle? Then he begins to defend his individual rights as an apostle, specifically this right that he has the right to get paid by them, that he indeed has this right. He says to them, do we not have the right to eat and drink? In other words, he says, as an apostle, I have a right to expect for you to supply my daily needs. I have a right to expect that I don't have to go out and work a second job in order to make ends meet. I can expect for you to pay me as an apostle. That's what he says. Then he says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of Jesus and Cephas? He says to them, not only do I have a right to expect you to support me in my daily needs, but if I were married, Paul's not married, but if I were I would have a right as an apostle to be married to a believing wife and to bring her along. John MacArthur points out, he, think, he says from this one verse, he believes you can, you can prove the case that, that a church should pay a pastor enough that his wife doesn't have to work a second job. That she can be as involved as she possibly can be in the ministry with her husband. Now, that's John MacArthur, that's not me, okay? Uh, so that's just get that out there. But he, he goes on and he says, he thinks that in this verse, that churches ought to, when conferences come up, that churches ought to send the wife as much as possible so that she can be side by side with the husband who's called to this ministry in this gospel work. 
John MacArthur, take it for what you want. Paul says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? He goes on, he says, or is it only, he's sarcastic here, or is it only Barnabas and me that don't have the right to refrain from working? He's being sarcastic. Paul did occasionally, if you read through your New Testament, Paul did occasionally receive monetary support from other churches. One of those we find in in Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. He says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They're sending him monetary gifts. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What he's saying there is, when you send me these things, you're not just supporting me. You're making it possible for the gospel to go into areas where it's not yet gone. And so there's fruit that's being accounted to you through your gifts. I have received full payment and more I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So occasionally, Paul receives monetary gifts from certain churches. But most of the time we read that Paul rejected monetary gifts from the churches where he was working. Most of the time we read that he worked with his own hands. He took a second job. He worked as a bivocational church planner because he was a tent maker on the side. We're going to learn why he does, he does this. But the point as he says this, when he says, or is it only Barnabas and I have, who have no right to refrain from working for a living, what he means is, look, I have a right to receive a salary from you, but I'm voluntarily giving that up. I'm not forced into doing this. I'm voluntarily doing this. Then he gives these five illustrations to support his right to be paid. He said, I am an apostle. I have these rights. Now let me illustrate this for you. Number one, he points to everyday life. In verse 7 he says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Now can you imagine... Anyone expecting a soldier to be in training and fighting in battle for eight hours of the day, but that soldier then coming and saying, hey, I've got to be off by 5 o'clock or 7 o'clock so I can go to my other job so that I can get food and clothing and I I can provide for my family. Well, that would be ludicrous. No one expects a soldier to have to take a second job to support themselves. They're going to serve the United States of America or whatever country they're living in, at the expense of that country. He says, look at that soldier. He serves at that expense, not at his own expense. The one who plants a vineyard, he's a sharecropper or a tenant cropper. He's going to get some of the fruit. He doesn't do this just to, hey, I'm just a nice guy. I'm just going to tend all your fruit for you. I don't expect anything in return. He has a right. He says, look, this is an illustration Or the shepherd who's tending the flock. He says, who's going to do that without expecting some of the milk? This is just how it works in everyday life. A second illustration, he says, look at the character of God. In verses 8 and 9, do I say these things on human authority? Or doesn't the law say the same thing? 
Paul's always quick to point to the Word of God. The law there is talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. That was the Bible to them. That was the Word of God. It's still the Word of God to us, but now we have the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the completed canon of Scripture, the Word of God. But he says here, look, look, look back. It's not just me telling you this. The Word of God says this. And doesn't the law not only show us what God requires of us, but doesn't it also show us the very character of God? Doesn't it also show us what God is like? Here he says, look, the law says this. It's written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle an ox while he's treading out the grain. And he says, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Isn't it just like God to be concerned for this dirty, filthy, smelly, just hunk of a beast? Isn't it just like God to do that? Isn't, isn't it just like God to really care for the one who is nobody gives a thought to? This is an animal harnessed to a threshing blade or, or a plow of some kind, working in the field. And God, in his law, says, don't put a muzzle on that beast. Let him eat as he goes along. God, the very character of God, is one that cares for the lowly things. We are wrong to assume that we are so lovable that God is privileged to have us on his side. Don't you understand that we, in the, yes, we are created as an image, as an icon of God. But when it comes to our fallen state, we are no different than that beast harnessed to that implement. God has no reason to care for us, but that's the character of God. And Paul says this is an illustration that God is caring for those he calls to gospel ministry. Psalm 14, or, or, or I'm sorry, Psalm 147 verse 9 says, He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And the only reason we are of more value than they is that we are the pinnacle of His creation, created to be a reflection of Him. But sin has tainted us. The image is still there, but it is marred and it is broken. Yet God loves us in our sin enough to come and die for us, to take our place, to take our punishment, to be raised from the dead so that one day we might live and reign with Him forever. And that's our God. Our God doesn't have to do anything any of that, but yet you look outside and just the very nature of the rain falling today is a measure that God cares. God cares for His creation. Paul says, look at the character of God. Don't don't miss that I have a right to this, he says. Third illustration. Look at your own circumstance. He's looking at the Corinthians and he says, look inwardly. Verses 11 through 12. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? This sounds familiar to the previous analogy up in verse 7. 
where the soldier expects to be paid, the vineyard, the, 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 the one who's working in the vineyard expects some of the fruit, the shepherd expects some of the milk. This sounds familiar to that, but now he's went from that general analogy of everyday life, and he's focused in with laser accuracy at their own situation. And he doesn't say a soldier or a man in a vineyard or a shepherd. He says, me. I've sown spiritual things among you. If you've reaped those spiritual things among yourselves, then is it too much to ask that I would reap material things from you? He says to them, this is how it works. This is what goes on. He's rendered a service to them, and should he not be entitled to be compensated? Fourth illustration. He says, look at the priestly model. Look at the example of of the priest. Look at the example of the ones who served in the temple, who served at the altars, who received the sacrifices. He says in verse 13, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altars share in the sacrificial offerings? I I told you last week that when those, uh, those... pagan temples when the people of Corinth and, and, and the surrounding regions in that um, uh, polytheistic culture would bring those sacrifices to whatever deity, little d deity, they would come to that temple and sacrifice, that a third of that would go on the altar offered to that idol. A third of that would, would then go to the man who was there receiving that on behalf of that idol, the the, the priest in that temple, and then a third would be kept by the one bringing the offering. Well, this was pretty similar probably to what went on even in um, Old Testament times among the Jewish people. When they would bring an offering, part of it would go to the priest. Part of it would go there to the, 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 the ongoing work in the tabernacle or, or in the temple. And this is what he's pointing to. He says, look, look at the priestly model. You can go back in our history. This is how it's worked. I'm not just making things up. We have a right to this. God has shown us a pattern of this. The last illustration that he points to is the Lord's command. Verse 14, he says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is probably a reference to when Jesus in in Matthew chapter 10 sends out the twelve to go out in his name and he tells them, don't take any gold or silver, don't take anything, just go because you as the worker have a right to receive the food. But those who are sent out in the gospel have a right to be paid. And Paul is building this elaborate case for why he should be paid as an apostle. Now, If you are visiting with us, it is not normal for me to get up here and build a case for why I should be paid. Okay, This doesn't happen all the time. I'm not a preacher who preaches about money. Sometimes to a fault. But why? Why is Paul here building such a case? Why does he take 14 verses to defend his rights? Why, why Why have I taken so much time to show you this? I mean, he states what he is. He, he states the individual rights. He gives illustrations, multiple illustrations of those rights. Why does he do this? I believe it's to show us that there are some things worth defending. There are some things worth fighting for. 
There are some things worth even dying for. Not all things. It's easy to get excited about that statement. I say to you, there's some things worth defending. And to stick our chest out. We get a little pride. Yeah, that's right. We should defend some things. Because it didn't take us very long to look back in Baptist history and know that Baptists love to fight, right? We love to fight. Many of you have sat in church business meetings or church conferences and watched as as there might as well have been a line drawn down the middle of the sanctuary because those on this side were, were for this and those on this side were against this and they would go back and forth and fight and bicker and back and forth. It doesn't take long to look and see that in Baptist history, whether it's individual churches or whether it's the Southern Baptist Convention, and I speak of the Southern Baptist Convention because that's my context, This probably is the case in other denominations as well. But we love to fight. And some things are worth fighting for. I believe in in the last 30 or 40 years in Southern Baptist life, there have been fights that we have needed to take on. The conservative resurgence of the 70s and 80s and 90s was a necessary battle because we had professors that were in seminaries and colleges that were teaching that this book was unreliable, that this was no longer the Word of God. And they brought into question everything that was here in the same way that the Corinthians were questioning Paul's authority. And so in the 70s and 80s and 90s, the Southern Baptist Convention behind men like Adrian Rogers and Paige Patterson and Al Moeller and some of these big names in our convention went to war to win this battle for the inerrancy of Scripture, to say that this book really is the Word of God. That was a battle worth fighting. Amen? Right now, we are in the middle of fleshing out this great commission resurgence that is really the the aftermath of the conservative resurgence. The conservative resurgence came along, and we won really the battle for the Bible. We have to continually fight that battle because there will always be those that try to creep in and say that this book is not really the Word of God, and you can't trust every bit of it. And we must say that from cover to cover, that this is the Word of God, that we believe this. We believe that this is the Word of God. But now this, this great commission resurgence is the fleshing out of that. That if this really is true, if this really is the Word of God, then how are we as churches and a convention going to make disciples of all nations? Do we really believe that there is coming a day when He will come again and judgment will come Do we really believe that there really is real hell? If we believe this book is true, then it would compel us to do some things. To believe some things. Not just sit in seats and say, Amen, preacher. But it would move us to go. To go to those who have not yet heard. Because we serve one who's revealed in this book, who is the very word of God, who deserves to be worshipped by all of his creation. Not just some. Not just our four and no more. But by all. There are some things that are worth defending. I think sometimes we, though, have too often trampled over the rights of individual Christians in individual churches by drawing lines of legalism where the Bible doesn't draw lines. I think we went too far. We we fought for this book and said, this is the Word of God. 
We must stand on this word. We must believe this word. But then we started going too far, and we began to go beyond this word. And we were doing the exact opposite of what those, the, the, the liberal camp was doing. They were going the other way, saying it's not the Word of God. We were going the other way, saying it is the Word of God, and we believe this to be the Word of God. We may not have phrased it that way, but we were drawing lines of legalism legalism and, and, and heaping guilt on people for involving themselves in certain things that the Bible never condemned. Y'all hear me? I, I think too often we have done that. We've trampled over the rights of people by drawing lines of legalism where the Bible doesn't draw lines. But I think probably more than that, we have turned deaf ears and blind eyes to the trampling of rights of individuals in the world all around us. It's very easy in churches to get consumed with self very easy to look inwardly and fight among ourselves while there are rights that are being trampled on the outside, left and right. One issue is abortion. Abortion is a major issue. In 1973, Roe versus Wade uh, legalized abortion in this country. And since then, since 1973, there have been almost, if my figures are right, almost 60 million babies, innocent babies, murdered. If you followed any of the Kermit Gosnell trial, you, you realize just the despicable nature of abortion. This should be the concern of the church. We should be concerned about the rights of these who cannot defend themselves. Some things are worth defending. The, the redefinition of marriage in our country, the battle that's going on to redefine marriage no longer as between one man and one woman, but now to define it as between two men or two women? Where does it go from there? Does it go beyond that? Can it be, can it be beyond two? Can it be three or four? Can, does it have to be a human? Can it be something else? Can it be my dog? Can it be my tree? There's, this is worth fighting for. Human trafficking. Human trafficking today in the world. Slavery is what we're talking about. People being sold into slavery. It's not just a thing that ended it still goes on. There are more slaves in the world today than ever. Today, in the world, 27 million slaves. That's more than the entire population of the state of Florida and Georgia. Slaves in the world today. Every two minutes, every 120 seconds, four children are sold into slavery. Somewhere in the world. Those that are sold, children and adults that are sold into slavery today, 2013, are sold for an average of $90 a piece. $90 for human life. Lest you think this only is in other parts of the world, Atlanta is one of the biggest hubs for slavery in the world, and it is one of 13 other U.S. cities that are among the top in the world for human trafficking. These things are worth defending. Let us stop being a people that are so narrowly focused on ourselves and building our kingdoms, building our six flags over Jesus. 
Let us be a people that says it is not about us. It is about the gospel freeing us to advance the kingdom by laying down our rights. That's the second point. Let's go there quickly. I told you the first was the longest. Here's the second. The gospel frees us to offer up our rights for the advance of the kingdom. Verse 12, second part of verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, and this is beautiful, Paul has just spent this entire time building this case as to why he deserves to have this right of being an apostle and being paid. He's just built an elaborate case. Yet in verse 12 he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Should this not be the model for Christians? Should we not be people that look at our own rights? And yes, we have rights. I have said it and I've wrongly said it, that when you, when you come to Christ, you, you lay down your rights, you lose your rights. And, and in one sense, that's true in that we don't come in demanding as people that it be our way. And we come to the gospel saying, Jesus, I can't, you can. But we don't go out of the world. We still live in our context as American citizens. We still have rights as citizens. We still have these things. But shouldn't we as Christians be willing to say, my rights can be laid down for the sake of the advance of the kingdom of Christ? Doesn't the gospel free us to that? This is... The big question is this, and this is why. Why didn't Paul make use of his rights as an apostle? What's, what's this obstacle in the way of the gospel that he's talking about? Why would his receiving a salary from the Corinthians hinder the gospel? Well, two things. Number one, in that area, in that part of the world, they, it was all the time these itinerant traveling philosophers... Preachers of some sort were coming through their town to make money off the people. They would come through and they would charge. There would be a patronage fee to get the wisdom of this particular man. And Paul knew that he was, he was not charged for the gospel. The gospel came to him freely. And he'd served here in these places. Paul largely served where no gospel presence had ever been. And so he went to these people and he, and he said, I don't want them to mix up or to confuse the gospel with this shady practice of these itinerant philosophers and preachers. I don't want them to think that this is just one more trick that's out there among them. I want them to see that the gospel has been paid for on the cross. I was serving with Ray the other night over at the, the academy for the Gator Fling. And uh, we were standing there and, and uh, Ray said to me, Hey, if, if someone comes up and asks if they can give you a donation, you know what to say, right? I said, well, you know, I'm the preacher. I probably should know what to say. I didn't say that. That's what I was thinking. And, and Ray said to me, all we say to them is that everything we have was paid for on the cross. Right there. That's exactly what he is doing. I'm serving, he says, for free. I want to preach the gospel for free so that they see the difference in this message and that that is out there every single day. The second reason that he doesn't take salary from them is that Paul is working in areas where not very much gospel presence had ever been. 
Paul says in Romans 15, 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So he's going to virgin territory. No gospel ever shared there. He's dealing with baby Christians. And the last thing he wants to do is to say to them, now, give me money. He understands that for them, there still could be some some confusion here. So he wants to grow them. He wants to disciple them. He wants them to grow up in the Lord. They're not off the hook permanently because when they grow in the Lord, they will be fully expected to give to the work of gospel ministry. This is what he says later. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He's writing to Timothy in an established setting then. And he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox. There's that again when it's treading out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. What he's saying to them years later is to say, Once you've grown up a little in the Lord, once you understand a little bit about what we're doing, what God's called us to, then you need to be generous people. Now hear me on this. I'm going to preach to you in this last 60 seconds message that is going to sting. It's going to hurt some of you. But some of you are sitting in these seats every week. You are participating in what God is doing here. You look around. There are lights on. There's air conditioning in the summertime. There's heat in the wintertime. There's, there's salaries that have to be paid. There's bills that have to There's a mortgage on this place. Some of you are coming in every single week. And you are reaping from the spiritual things that are sown without ever considering your obligation to give. If you have walked with Jesus for some time, you are expected to be a generous people toward the work of the gospel through the church where he's called you. I don't know how else to say it. I don't know, I don't know what else to say to you. This is not me up here. Believe me, this is not me up here saying, sow a seed and God will bless you. There's enough of that on TV. I'm simply pointing out to you what God says in his word. Yes, my salary is part of that. But this is not me up here begging for a raise. This is me. Hear me. Listen to me. This is me longing for us to be a people that does everything we do by that premise in verse 12b. So that we would not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ so that we would be willing to endure anything for the sake of the gospel. Oh, that we would be that people. Let us not be a people that are stingy and like the world, but let us say, God, free me to lay down my rights for the sake of the advance of your kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this sermon comes to an abrupt end. Not because I closed it down, but because, God, that's where it ends. That's what you've led me to say. Your word ends it there. And, God, I pray that you would take the message that has been preached, take the words that we've read from your word, and, God, that you would indeed apply them to each and every individual here. 
Lord, those that are here that are believers, God, transform us. Conform us to the image of Christ. Who could have been more generous than Him? He's the one who left the riches of heaven to be poor on the earth. He is the one who divested Himself of His godly attributes for a season to take on the likeness of human flesh. He's the one who knew no sin, but became sin for us. God, in this message, would you conform us to the generous character of Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to to think about, to ask God, God, what does this require of me? Uh, We ask that you just take a few seconds sitting in your seat and just ask that question to God. Ethan's going to lead us. In just a few minutes, he'll ask you to stand and begin to sing. And um, you're invited to do anything God leads you to do. I'll be sitting right up here. Um, If God lays on your heart to come talk to me, whether it's to be saved, for me to lead you to Christ, I'd love to do that. Or whether it's to get prayer for something else, maybe you need to come and pray by yourself or with somebody. Maybe God's leading you to join this church. Whatever it is God lays on your heart to do, we ask that you would be obedient to him. The word of God calls us to action. It doesn't call us just to sit, take it in, and then go out as if we never heard it. If it is true, if it is true, then there are some things that will need to change in us. The gospel frees us, not only to lay down our rights for the advance of the kingdom, but to be obedient in what he calls us to. Let's worship him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.